Lara Barrera, and welcome to the eighth and final episode of our 2016 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Measures for Protecting and Building No-Till Soils, is being brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert about upcoming episodes when they are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. Sometimes a grower will approach Steve Berger and tell him that he lost 40 bushels trying to no-till and use cover crops. Steve, a no-tiller and cover crop user in Wellman, Iowa, takes that to heart. But he thinks the reason some guys may be losing yield is due to four things. Nitrogen, the planter setup, insects, and time. In this episode, which comes from the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference, Steve will talk about why he thinks those four components are key to good yields in a no-till cover crop program, and what specifically he recommends no-tillers do to be successful in their systems. I'll also share details about his own farm and why his management program is designed the way it is. Before we get into the presentation, I'd like to mention that Steve will occasionally refer to some slides from the PowerPoint presentation he shared at the conference. If you would like to view any slides, visit www.notillfarmer.com articles 6319. Again, that's notillfarmer.com articles 6319. Please note that you will have to be registered and logged into our website to access the slides. Registration on our website is free. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Montag Manufacturing, we welcome Steve Berger to talk about how to protect and build the soil with no-till and cover crops. I just think about how excited we were about 40 years ago in Washington County in southeast Iowa when a neighbor called and wanted us to go to a meeting and uh, Jim Free, our extension director, wanted to get no-till started. And I just remember um, the, the buy-in from the Soil Conservation Service. We had great leadership there, our extension council, and trying to get something new established. And I remember that first no-till planter we had. It was a Kinsey. And I remember taking our, our grain truck, a straight truck, up to Kinsey Manufacturing, just about 10 miles north, and we backed it up there and we loaded that planter in in pieces. And we brought that planter home and put it together. And actually, John Kinzebaugh and his brother Tom sold us that planter. It was a new no-till planter. And I'm not sure why we had to put it together in pieces, but it probably had something to do with the John Deere units, I think, at the time. And he couldn't sell it um, assembled like that. But anyway, we were excited. And we still have that excitement today. 
And I think we're as devoted today to no-till and cover crops as what we were 40 years ago. And I think time is of the essence. Here in Iowa, we've got some pretty heady times with the Des Moines Water Works is bringing a lawsuit against three counties in western Iowa. And it's kind of a race against time, and it's going to be the courts versus the farmers. And I guess what I'm looking to do on our farm is just kind of keep my head down and let's learn how to no-till and so farmers can adopt this practice and maybe make some money at it. And uh, my thought process goes like this. I mean, we use no-till as a base. We're not going to till the soil. We're not going to stir it up, or we're not going to oxidize that soil off. So we're not going to stir the soil. And then we're going to start growing something, keep an active crop growing like cover crops. And then that starts to change the biology beneath the soil. And then it improves the soil, and then it improves our crops. That's kind of my thought process. And I can remember about 15 years ago, I went to the no-till conference in Cincinnati. And um, a, a farmer by Dean Holst from LeClaire, Iowa, I think we were in the big ballroom of, uh, in Cincinnati, I believe it was. And uh, he stood up and he said, farmers, you know, even in a corn and bean rotation, no-till, we're still losing organic matter. We can't get it done just corn and beans. And that, I was really shocked. That was one of those aha moments. You know, we have a lot of those as we, we go along. But he said, you know, we're still losing organic matter as no-tillers in a corn-bean rotation. And obviously, it was the bean, the bean year that we're losing it. And I thought, boy, at that point, you know, we're going to have to do something else. And that's where I thought, well, that's where the cover crops have, have got to come into the operation. And we started our very first no-till crop, you know, with cover crops. But then about 15 years ago, we added that uh, full time. The next few minutes, I really want to just focus on about three things. I want to talk about our system, how we do it in a corn bean, soybean, and, and a lot of swine on the farm. And then I want to talk about how we can improve yields on the farm. I go to a lot of conferences or I'll run into farmers, you know, after church or at a Farm Bureau meeting and they'll come up to me and say, you know, I read about you in a magazine and I know I lost 40 bushels. My corn falling right cost me 40 bushels and it doesn't work. Or we're talking about another group of farmers and no-till comes up and, you know, he's just not getting it done. He's, he's got a yield drag there, you know. And so, and I do take that to heart. They're, not, they're being sincere about it, and so we have to kind of teach how, how can we get that yield gap made up, you know, if, uh, in no-till and in, in cover crops. And then the other thing, the long-term changes in the soil. I've had the, had the advantage of, of long-term no-till. Now we can start to see the changes in the aggregate structure of the soils, and we can see what the biology changes are doing when we plant these cover crops. And so we want to kind of go through the systems approach, and we'll just start that right off. And uh, we started no-till as a base over the years. And then we're going to follow that up with cover crops. This is my dad, Dennis, and we lost him in October to cancer. And um, he was probably one of my uh, best mentors, and I sure miss him. He would be here today, too. But uh, everything he ever tried to do was uh, in support of no-till. He was a real believer in that. And, uh, and so we, uh, we're going to sure miss him. As Jerry Hatfield says, most of our organic matter is in the roots. And that residue on top, as we um, learn that it, most of that oxidizes off, but it provides food for the, um, the microorganisms and um, it also protects from the rain. I mean, what are you really working for? I'm just trying to do two things. I'm trying to raise a top, you know, I'm trying to raise the best possible corn crop I can, whether that's 200, 300, 400 bushels an acre, but we're also trying to leave some cover on that topsoil. And in the southern drift plain where I live in southern Iowa, you know, it's pretty typical to have organic matters 
go anywhere from your sandy areas to you know one to two percent up to four percent. But if you go all the way to the right hand side of that picture, you kind of see a dark strip. And that's where I had them just soil test uh, the fence row. And then you can see the, the organic matter in those fence rows is about double what's in the field. And where, you know, Dan said earlier, you know, we've lost half our potential, you know, in our, in our topsoil. And that's where you can really see it right there. It's real evident that we've lost half our uh, topsoil, half our potential, especially where I live in the state of Iowa, from just oxidizing that. Uh, organic matter off just from tillage and then from erosion and other things. And so we know what we've got, what we've got going on here. Um, we'll never get back to those original days like we have in the fence row, but if we would pull that fence, take that fence out, either rent or buy the farm and, and farm through, and what we learned in the early 90s with our yield monitor, we'd go back and forth through that old fence row and that yield monitor would jump like 40, 50 bushels for that momentary time that we went through that. And that was really the first time we seen that. And so we knew there was something going on there, you know, but we didn't know what, we couldn't really explain it. And this just kind of explains, I'm in the Southern Drift Plain, less soils in Southern Iowa, kind of in the rolling hills uh, down in the Southeast part. Um, we want to keep something growing on these soils year round from April through March, our crop years, you know, five to seven months, we want to keep our, our corn and soybeans growing, then we want to follow up with, with some type of a cover crop. And I'll just go through our system here. We, for the most part, drill about 90% of our cereal rye in our case. Um, here we're going in the field, it wasn't really for the picture. This is really what happens, we get the grain dryer fired up, the, um, grain carts hooked up and we've got that drill ready to go. And so when the drill catches up to the combine, we let it set. Um, Dan mentioned Nick Reed. Nick, we have the, we farm right across the fence row from the Reed Brothers in southeast Iowa. And so Nick was one to help me put this crust buster drill together. He was one of the innovators, you know, several years ago. And so um, we get the rye emerged and growing in the, in the fall. And then we do a little bit of aerial application at times. Um, this is Steve Nebel in southeast Iowa. For you ag talkers, that would be VMO. He's spraying some cereal rye on beans. In certain t times, that would, this works really good. And then we follow up with a, we start to add nitrogen early. And we're going to add nitrogen early and often. Here we're going, making a pass through the field with ammonium sulfate. And you might see a little bit of a red streak in there. We've probably got some potash that we're adding too. But uh, we feel like we want to, it's all about the carbon-nitrogen ratio. So we're starting to add just a little bit of nitrogen early into the fall. And then we also have sources of turkey manure. Um, probably about 10 to 15% of our farms get turkey manure every year. And then we have quite a bit of swine. Uh, we're in an area where there's a lot of hogs. And I've got about 20,000 head of my own hogs. So we're always spreading uh, manure, and in this case, we're, we're surface applying it. Uh, we went back to surface application a few years ago because a lot of my manure is custom applied and I can't always control it, you know, the, how it is injected. Um, and so for that reason, we, um, we kind of went back to surface application. I put this 2020 yield monitor up here for a reason. And what I'm thinking about here is when we're putting this in the planter, we're planting corn, we're looking at uh, the good ride that we get. And I noticed over the years when we're uh, following like a, um, a rough pass, you know, either you know, whether it's a manure applicator or you know, anhydrous, 
we get a rougher ride. We don't get as good a seed control. And so one of the reasons I went back to surface supplying uh, hog manure was just to make it uh, a smoother operation. We've got that, that nitrogen up where we want it. Um, of course, we're concerned about the volatilization of nitrogen or the ammonia off, the, off of the manure, but we also try to do it in the coldest parts coldest times of the year. And in this particular case, you can't see it, but we do have rye, emer uh, rye emerged here. And so it's, um, it's in the seedling stage, but uh, we went back to surface applying quite a bit of our manure. Here's another uh, shot of where we're just drilling rye right up behind it. This kind of shows how fast that manure will infiltrate. And, um, you know, long-term no-till cover crops, you know, your, your infiltration rates are going to go up pretty high. We've got three tankers in the field now, and so we can kind of keep up there with the drill, and we're working it in and really not making too much of a mess. So the key point, we're doing about 6,000 gallons an acre here of uh, nursery manure. The other thing we did a lot of is tile. And as Dan mentioned in his, I think we've had a, you know, a, a tile machine on the farm ever since my dad started back in the middle 50s every year. And uh, in this particular field, we're just splitting the laterals. The field had been tiled out and we're going back in and, uh, and splitting the laterals here in this case. And so we go through the, the winter months here and then we get to the spring and then we're, our rye's looking really strong here. We've got some annual ryegrass in a plot that uh, Dan Towery come out a few years ago and helped help get established. And then we got the cilia rye. And here I'm thinking about watersheds. You know, if we took a, just a big hit, like a four or five inch rain, and we do get these now, it seems like, Cereal rye, which we use mostly, has a lot of looks to it. You know, farmers will ask me, well, how tall is it gonna be when I, when I spray it in the spring or, you know, what's the growth stage? Well, it really depends because I'm not, it depends when you plant the rye, it depends how your, your fall is going to go, the moisture situation, the heat units. And so rye has a lot of different looks to it. But um, there's several cases, you know, where you don't have to get very tall rye to, you know, do a lot of good. You know, just a little bit of growth will do a lot to protect that soil. And so, or in those cases where we um, plant beans into it, we'll, we'll, we'll drill beans into a rye that's headed out and just knock it over. So I, we, uh, we work with rye and we just kind of do with what Mother Nature gives us. We also do a little bit of spring application of, um, of swine manure. Um, there again, if long-term no-till cover crops, you can get away with a little bit more. Come back and we're going to do my weed and feed. I'm applying a herbicide here to terminate, uh, using glyphosate to terminate the rye. I'm starting to add a little bit of uh, liquid nitrogen back in the mix. And so we're actually terminating the rye. I've got my, uh, my herbicides and we're also doing nitrogen in here. I'm getting about 25 pounds of nitrogen, another, another pass. And then we come through with the corn planter. A pretty typical shot in the spring. Sometimes we're planting into greener rye. There were only two planters running this day in Washington County. Only a third of the corn was planted, and there were only two guys going, and they were no-tillers. Even Paul Reed was sitting that day. I called Paul to see if he was running, and they weren't, and uh, it was a big rain expected that night. But and so there, it's really kind of a myth. You know, usually it's the tillage guys that are the ones that are sitting around waiting, and the no-till guys can go because it's a little bit wet here, but we could, we're able to stay, stay up and get it planted. And that field did go around 250, in fact. Do a little bit of planting in the green rye, not a lot. We went from a two-by-two two applying our nitrogen, or about 60 pounds of dribbling it over the or top of the row, and that has worked really well. I wasn't quite sure about that, but um, a lot of the neighbors had switched with the larger planters. We got rid of the weight of that John Deere opener. 
we're just basically putting a Y splitter out the back and it just, it, it just hoses and it's easy to apply and it just works really well. And uh, planting soybeans, drilling beans, we've always had a drill. I think we started out with the drill and we've always stayed with the drill. Now we're going to come back with another pass on nitrogen. Here I'm putting about 50 pounds of uh, UAN on, uh, and then I'm also spraying. We're also getting our post-spray trip done. So I'm really doing two activities in the field at once. And we live uh, in an area where we got a lot of contours, a lot of point rows, where it's kind of hard farming. So if you can do 100 acres in a day, or maybe even 80 acres on the hills, you're doing really good. You know, you're really doing pretty good. But when you get done with that spray pass, you've actually got, you know, you've doubled the, uh, the amount you normally do in a day. And so that's worked really well here. And so that was kind of the system approach that we go through. And all I want to talk about, how do we get those yields up? Well, indeed, you do have an opportunity to lose yield following cereal rye. And um, this is some bar graph data I pulled off of the Pioneer DuPont website. It's just basically showing the... Um, yield effect of a crop following rye by year. This is over a four year period and you can see indeed on the left hand side where you can lose up to maybe 20 bushels an acre you know, following rye. And then, then you can also make some, improve some yield. But you can also see though that there's a, there's a pretty big opportunity there to lose yield following you know, in, in the corner. And that's what these farmers are, when they come up to me and are concerned about, you know, look, I'm losing I'm losing yield, that's what they're talking about. And then we look at the soybean bar chart, it looks a little bit different. It looks like they get along a little bit better. You know, I just, my first offhand remark would be, well, you know, corn's very sensitive, very stand sensitive. You know, we lose one plant, we're gonna lose a lot more yield. And also I think there's a nitrogen factor in there too. So I really think in the corn, you've got the nitrogen issue, you've got that, you gotta have that perfect stand. Where in soybeans, you know, you can go out there with half a stand and almost you know, realize a full yield. And I think you're seeing that in those slides. So I really think there's about four areas. You know, when a farmer comes up to me at a show and I said, you know, I'm never gonna do that again. I lost 20 or 30 bushels, you know. Then I walk away and I said, well, I wonder what he did, you know. And you know, how could we, how could we change that situation? And you know, I really think it comes down to these four things, you know, and it, in nitrogen. I really think it's a carbon-nitrogen ratio issue. The planter, getting your planter set right. Insects is an easy one. Sometimes, some places, you know, you may lose two or three percent here, four or five percent there, or maybe even more to insects certain times, certain places. And then I also think there's just a soil or a time factor in letting that soil aggregation change over. And I think it's those four things. Now, those may not seem earth shattering to you or not, but you know, you know, it is after the holidays, and you know, I put on a little extra weight and I go to the gym. And my trainer, she's going to say, well, you need to eat less and move more, you know. Well, I knew the answer before I went, you know, and it's, it's a little like this here, but I really kind of come down to thinking it's kind of in the nitrogen, uh, the planter, and those insects in time. And I think if we whittle away at those, we can get those yields back up. We'll rejoin Steve in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, 
and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. And before we return to the program, I wanted to let you know it's not too late to register for the final discounted price of the 25th National No-Tillage Conference. This anniversary event is taking place on January 10th through the 13th in St. Louis. Register by tomorrow, December 31st, for $319, a $50 savings off the on-site rate. Also, there are still hotel rooms available at the Hyatt Regency St. Louis at the Arch, which is just two blocks away from the conference's host hotel, the Hilton St. Louis at the Ballpark. For complete details or to register online, visit www.notillconference.com. Now let's hear more from Steve on why nitrogen, planter setups, insect control, and time are the key factors to succeeding with no-till and cover crops. Our nitrogen program, if you kind of look at it as a clock, start up there at about the one o'clock position where we got the ammonium sulfate. I make that trip early in the fall, about 30 pounds an acre of actual nitrogen out there. And then we sometimes do some turkey manure uh, we do some swine manure, and then we come back in the spring. I got a little bit of uh, nitrogen on when I put my, uh, terminate my rye. A little bit of spring swine manure, not very much. And then with the planter, we actually, it's not a two by two anymore. I'm dribbling right behind the row, and then I've got some in-furrow uh, pop-up fertilizer, and then we come back and side dress. So I really got about seven different opportunities to add nitrogen there. I don't do that to every field every year, but in some way, in some form, we're getting nitrogen on a lot of different times. We're spoon feeding it. And it, the other thing is we're getting it more on the surface. We're not, it's not being knifed in. That corn root don't have to go looking for that nitrogen. It's right there, you know. And if you want to, well, how much total nitrogen you put on? Well, you can kind of control how much total nitrogen, you know. You can vary each one of those rates, and you can change it going throughout the year. And so that's really kind of our nitrogen program. You know, we're doing a lot of different passes uh, throughout the year, and then it's also a, a very shallow. This would be a typical picture of what our no-till would have looked like, you know, years ago. Actually, this was a neighbor's field right next to ours. And I mean, if you really dissected that picture, I mean, he's got a pretty good stand. There's not any plants uh, missing there, but the color's, the color's not, not quite there. That corn's growing for that nitrogen. This was anhydrous, fall applied anhydrous, and then just planted into it with no, no attachments on the planter, maybe other than a row cleaner. And this is what you get. And I think this is a lot of what farmers come up to me and are real concerned about. It don't look very good. And, um, in about two weeks, it'll look a lot better at 40 miles an hour. You won't even miss a beat. It'll look fine. It'll all be green. But I think we've lost yield potential right here. 500 foot away, you turn around and take a picture. That's my field there. And if you look at every angle through that picture, you've got pretty even corn. You've got a really good color. And it looks like there's full yield potential there. I mean, you kind of go back and forth. And I think... I think a lot of the difference is how many passes of nitrogen, surface applied nitrogen I've got on that. That corn doesn't have to look for it. It's not missing a beat going for it. And so I like the looks of the even corn that we've had over the years. I think changing our nitrogen pattern around has kind of given us that color. Here's a lot of residue. This was planted into green rye. And that corn looks like it's got good color there again, you know, several passes of nitrogen on there. Okay, that was the nitrogen. The second thing is the planter setup. 
an obvious thing. We know that. Uh, Iowa State come in and did a um, seed treatment plot here a few years ago. They just took one acre right out of the middle of the field. They were just testing seed treatments. And they were going to bring in their, their little plot planter, their little Elmanco planters, and, uh, and then I was to plant around it. Uh, my planter's on the, on the left, and they got the Elmanco planter on the right. Pretty typical plot planter, you'll see. It was set up for no-till, they thought, you know. And so that's what we did. We did this about uh, two, three years ago. It's a little hard to see here. I'll just let it sit there a while, but you can look at that picture, and that looks like a pretty crappy field of corn, don't it? That looks like why you wouldn't want a no-till. That was the plot planter. Plot planter on the right, my planter on the left, you know. Just planted within hours of each other. Everything was practically the same. Then there was another management issue where we'd stop the combine in the fall. You know, we had more residue there, so you could really break that into four, four management zones. I would take the one in the upper left. Looking at it again from the side, here we're just comparing planters. Planted within hours of each other. You kind of see the difference in the, in the lower half was our planter, the upper half. The endros were ours. The endros looked pretty strong. And so, you know, farmers that don't have their planters set quite right, I think can experience a loss, and I think you know that too, but I think there's quite a difference there, and there was about a 40 to 50 bushel difference. And, you know, we can go to planter clinics all winter long, and there'll be, a, you know, a planter clinic near you. Um, the Reed Brothers, as Dan mentioned earlier, have been really innovative in getting a lot of these attachments started. Dave Moeller actually lives right next to me. Dave Moeller has been a frequent speaker here, and um, he'll be working on our planter again next week. We'll pull it in the shop. And we've put about every adaptation on there that you can find, and I'll bet your planters probably match that too. The one change I would say, you know, 20 years ago, I would have been pretty emphatic exactly how you do that. Well, the older I get now, the less, uh, the less sure I am about how planters should be set up. But just suffice it to say, you know how to get good seed-to-soil contact. And I'll bet through across the United States, our soils, our climates are different, then you're maybe going to want to set that planter up differently. So for me to go through and tell you you need to have it exactly like this would be, would be pretty silly. But, um, you know, we change our minds almost daily on some things, too. And... Uh, uh, the reduced the RID tires, the reduced inner diameter tires, for one thing, uh, we change those out with just regular John Deere tires. Uh, the spike closing wheels, you know, there's days I think cast iron wheels would be the best thing on the farm, you know, if you could pick your day. And so, but it all comes down to seed soil contact when that seed imbibes that moisture, and so we can get it up at the same time. And I guess you know, kind of leave it up to you to figure out how you do that. Uh, we're also uh, putting on 624 six. I'm putting on about three gallons and then I'm spiking it with water to get about six gallons an acre so I get a nice even stream of uh, nitrogen going on. I add an insecticide. And if I had to pull one of those out, I think I would pull the fertilizer out first and leave the insecticide there because I don't have an insecticide attachment on here. But in long-term no-till cover crops with a lot of manure, you get to see the seed attacking insects. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then this planter here, you can see we've got it set up to where we're dribbling nitrogen behind. And I would, I would recommend that. And uh, so we're doing a lot of different things. And just a little more on the, the RID, the reduced inner diameter gauge wheel that's on the planter. You know, we started out putting those on 20 years ago. And I'm sure most farmers, you know, would, a lot of farmers would have that on. A lot of them don't. 
If you look really close at that picture, there's a lot of zigzagging going on there. I wasn't even taking this picture for that reason. I was doing it for something else, but you see a lot of zigzagging going on there, and that's from that RID tire. I'm not so concerned about the left to right movement, but I wonder about the up-down movement, you know. And so we did, we do have another set of just regular gauge wheels, and we put those on and off, it's kind of like NASCAR, you know, we'll switch them on and off. And we have noticed in, in certain cases where the regular John Deere uh, gauge wheels will actually will get a little quicker emergence with that, but then it can swing the other way really quickly. You know, you can get into some pretty wet wet soils where we tend to plant a little earlier, and then we can go back and forth. And so I guess the main point here is is you just have to be watching and know that you're going to have to make some changes on certain certain times. I get a lot of, a lot of farmers that come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I'm not going to do all those changes you make. I'm not going to spend you know, all that money, I work in town, I'm farming weekends, and I can't spend that kind of money, and I think that's, that's very good advice, and I think you can do just as well, uh, you know, with the John Deere 7000 planter, you get your meters set, get your row cleaners on there, I think I pull that coulter off, uh, but uh, I'm just, I just put this in here to say that you can go to, you know, an auction and buy some row cleaners, have that nitrogen surface applied, and you know you can have about 98% of what we do with our expensive planters too. So this just doesn't have to be a um, you know high dollar planter. So that was the second thing. We did the nitrogen, we do the plant, uh, planter changes, and then I do have to throw the insects in here because you can get annihilated with army worms over the weekend. Um, black cutworm moths are always bothering us, and then of course you've got the seed attacking insects. And where we don't have the granular uh, option on our planter, I do, we do put a, a generic capture or a capture LFR in furrow from time to time. I'm also adding that uh, in my post application of spray too. So we're using insecticide quite a bit. Now, you know, I would, I would keep integrated pest management in mind if you don't want to use it, but my feeling is more times than none that it, you know, as cheap as it is, we, you know, we're always adding like a, like a cyfluthrin, like a bathroid or a bifenthrin in, in furrow. And uh, the last thing would be the time factor, you know, and the, the differences in yields. I can't tell a farmer across the road, start cover cropping and you're going to enjoy all these great yields right away. Because it really what we're doing, we're changing that soil aggregation, we're changing the soil, the pore spaces and stuff through the roots, and I think that's happening over time. These were some microscopic slides taken from our soil geologist in Iowa. On the left-hand side is one of our fields, and the right-hand side was a aggressively tilled field. And so the take-home point here is, you know, it's just basically uh, the size of the pore space is a key role in plant growth. You want that 60-40 water, uh, air-water air relationship, you know, and you just, you don't snap your finger and get that all at once. And so that's why I kind of throw that time factor in there. But, you know, if you had a cover crop, as Dave Brandt will tell you, you know, you can, you can speed that up pretty quickly, can't you, Dave? You know, three to, you can do that real quick. And if I did as much as what Dave did, I could probably do it even faster. But uh, so we get uh, those cover crops in there. And so when we, my, my local scientists come and pulled those slides, you know, and saw that, I, I was pretty, pretty happy to see that. Um, 2012 was a drought year for us. That photo on the left-hand side shows what drought corn looks like. That was a, probably the, one of the driest years we experienced. You can still see that green color on that corn. And I don't remember what the yield was in that, you know, if it was 160 or 180, but it was pretty good corn for a drought year, you know. And so we were, 
we were able to we were able to make it through there, and I think with the genetics, and there's no question that the the corn hybrids are much better now. But there's no question in my mind that uh, the organic matter and the, maybe the rooting depth of the corn is better. Just to kind of end up, where are my organic matters going? And this is kind of a tough subject because I don't. I'm really kind of out of my scientific area, and that's why I come to meetings like this to learn. But all I'm doing is going back on my. Um, soil testing that my co-op would do for manure management plans. That's my only record. So we're just using that, that six inch probe on two and a half acre grids and I'm just basically fulfilling my manure management plan. And so you can kind of see through the years, oh, four, eight, 11, 15, we're seeing the, the organic matters climb. Here's a hillier farm, start with lower organic matter, went from 2.6 to 2.8 to 3.2. Here's one now, I didn't do too much from four to eight, then 12, it took a spike. My guess is it probably should have been higher in the 2008 year and lower in the 2012. But here's one that I just took the other day and um, we haven't really gained much here in the last 10 years in that farm. You know, and I hate it, I almost didn't put this in, but I think I had to because it is what it is, you know, and I, it really is real life, you know, where we started in 2005. This is a rented farm. It's been, you know, highly tilled for many, many years, and, you know, we get, you know, from 2005 to 2008, we go from, you know, 3.1 to 3.5, you know, that's quite a jump. It goes back down in 11, and it goes, you know, down even more in 15. So I almost wonder if that isn't more of a testing issue Maybe that's a Ray Ward question or something, you know. Yeah, I guess you want to believe what you want to believe. But so I, you know, the, this whole idea of organic matter, it's, it's quite a science and I'm not sure, you know, if we're, we're learning, you know, which labs to go to and how to test and how to, you know, we didn't start out testing with, you know, for organic matters, but I just wanted to show you what we're seeing in our farm. If you remember, I go back to uh, Dean Holst back in 2000 at the Cincinnati Convention. He said, you know, we're not getting the job done in a corn bean rotation. We're losing organic matter. I think what we, at the best I can say, at least we've got the slide stopped, and I think through our manures and cover crop, I think we can increase our organic matters. And, uh, and if I... Um, would just like to end up here by you know saying that you know, we've been at this a very long time and it just keeps getting better every year. You know we've never quit. We've always if there's a problem, we never took it as a no-till problem. We took it as something that you know it, it could be solved. You know and adding the cover crops. You know, I mean I I just can't say enough about you know the work that you know Gabe Brown and what Dave Brandt and these guys do, and um, it's a learning experience for me and. Coming to the no-till conference, if you've never been to one before, if this is your first one, you know, I've had a lot of aha moments that I can think back that actually originated right from these conferences, you know. And so I, I just kind of leave it to you. What do you think you guys will be doing in 20 years, you know? Will it be something that you learned today? So thank you. Thank you to Steve Berger for sharing his system, his challenges and triumphs, and his advice to other no-tillers on how to make no-till and cover crops work. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 25th anniversary of the National No-Tillage Conference. Again, the 2017 event is taking place in St. Louis from January 10th through the 13th, and you can still save $50 off the on-site registration fee if you register by tomorrow, December 31st. Visit www.notillconference.com to register. 
I'd also like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, once again, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I look forward to your feedback on today's episode. Feel free to drop me an email at lbarrera at lessettermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider and drylander no-tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and on our no-till farmer Facebook page. For Steve Berger, Montag Manufacturing, and our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm Laura Barrera. Thanks for listening.